So last week we talked about worship, about the reforms that Luther made to the settings of the Mass that he inherited. And this week we're going to pivot first away from Luther to another guy named Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was a professor of Greek at Wittenberg, where Luther taught. He showed up in 1518, about a year after the 95 Theses went up. And he fell under Luther's influence and became an influential thinker in the Reformation. When Luther was in hiding at the Wartburg Castle, Melanchthon is one of the key players here who's keeping things rolling. Melanchthon was also different than Luther because Melanchthon was a systematic theologian, whereas Luther was more of a pastoral theologian. The difference here is that systematic theologians think about theology starting from God and who God is in God's self, and pastoral theologians think more in terms of specific situations. So Melanchthon's writing is often tighter than Luther's, and as a result, it's not quite as much fun to read. So in 1530, Charles V calls an imperial diet for the Lutheran princes to come to Augsburg and explain their position. And Luther can't go to the diet since he'd end up killed, so Melanchthon goes instead. And Melanchthon writes a confession of faith that evangelical princes and cities sign on to that becomes known as the Augsburg Confession. If you go into the model constitution of the ELCA, you'll notice that the Augsburg Confession is called a true witness to the gospel, while the other writings by Martin Luther that we know, like the small catechism, are just called further valid interpretation. The point is that the Augsburg Confession is the central confessional statement of our and many other Lutheran churches. If you go to Eastern Europe, for example, many Lutheran churches are called such and such church of the Augsburg Confession. So what's actually in the Augsburg Confession? Well, there are 28 articles in it. And what's interesting is that you might expect the tone to be very contradictory or aggressive. But Melanchthon's goal is to show that they're adhering to the true scriptural teaching of the church. So of those 28 articles, 21 are things that they say they are in the correct teaching on. And the last seven are things that they've corrected or changed, but only because they're reforming bad practices that have crept in over the years. So the Augsburg Confession is actually a fairly conservative document in the sense that it's trying to show that the evangelicals are practicing the true historic faith of the church. They're not coming up with new stuff on their own, and they're also not posing a threat to civil authorities. One interesting way you see that play out is the regular condemnations of the Anabaptists. Anabaptists were part of the Radical Reformation, and one of the things they believed is that since ultimate authority resided with God, not with the government, they wouldn't sign contracts. Now that posed an immense threat to the way territories and cities were governed. So no surprise that evangelicals like Melanchthon and Luther were often accused of being Anabaptists. But the evangelicals are going out of their way to prove to Charles that they're not. So the seven areas where they disagree or they say they're changing current practice are Number one, we talked about this last week, administering the sacrament in both kinds, which means giving lay people wine and bread. Two, allowing priests to marry. The ban on marriage, they argue, was a later addition, and that God commends marriage, and celibacy had caused a lot of damage. It's actually a fairly modern argument that you hear sometimes. Number three, affirming the Mass isn't a sacrifice, but a promise that God makes to us. This is what we talked about last week again. Number four is practices involving confession, including the claim that confession and absolution forgives all sins, including the ones you don't confess by name. Number five is criticism of fasting and not eating certain kinds of foods at particular times. This is really about the use of historic and spiritual practices, not necessarily just food. 
Number six is monastic vows, which are eliminated completely because vows are not equal to or a replacement for baptism. This is related to what Luther thinks about vocation and how our baptism lets us live public lives of witness. And number seven, the power of bishops. The power of bishops is interesting because it doesn't explicitly criticize the Pope, but it's there in the text. There's a few interesting things about the Augsburg Confession that are worth noting or pointing out too. One is that even though it's written by Melanchthon, it's signed by princes. So while the theologians have one set of goals, the integrity of their theological beliefs, the princes have another, maintaining the legitimacy of their power. It's also interesting because it's a relatively conservative document, mostly trying to show how the Lutheran Reformation is a reform movement within the church, not an attempt to start a new church. And finally, because as we talked about, it's not written by Luther. The other piece of writing we're going to be talking about this week is a book called Transforming Mission by David Bosch. Bosch was a professor in South Africa who wrote during the mid to late 20th century. And Transforming Mission was published in 1991, a year before he died. Transforming Mission is kind of a capstone book that represents a broader shift in thinking that happened during the 20th century about how Christians think about mission. When we think of mission, we usually think of the church. Right? The church has a mission statement. The church goes on mission trips. The church may do mission, it may not. But from the time of the early church until Luther was alive, mission was something that God did. Mission referred to God sending God's self into creation. The sending of the Son, the sending of the Spirit, and finally, the sending of the church as another movement into the world. So the mission of the church isn't something we come up with on our own. It's an act or motion of God that we participate in. If you want a way to think about how this plays itself out historically, especially within Protestant traditions, you can go back about a hundred years ago. When we think of ecumenical projects, stuff like the World Council of Churches, ecumenical documents, or statements that we sign, we often think of them as something that we do because they're nice. Like these aren't really mission or the responsibility of the church, but it's important to play nice in the sandbox, so to speak. The history of the ecumenical movement is a little bit more complicated. Around the turn of the 20th century, while missionaries from the West are going abroad to foreign nations, there's a realization that you can't just send people out on their own. And so there's this big new interest in interdenominational global mission. In 1910, there's a big conference in Edinburgh where a bunch of church leaders gathered to talk about how to bring themselves into closer communion so they can be in mission. A part of that is practical because you don't want to have every denomination in every town. At some point, it becomes redundant. But there's also a deeper logic, which is that the existence of division within the church makes it harder to be in mission. It's hard to say that God calls us to reconciliation and community when the church has as many factions as any other group of people. One interesting example of this is the Church of South India, which was a combination of Reformed, Congregational, and Anglican churches. So instead of having three churches working side by side, they decided to just create one church. Now there's two big movements that come out of this missionary. Now there's two big movements that come out of this missionary impulse. One is called faith and order, and it's about doctrine and church teaching. How do we understand others' traditions and beliefs? Do we believe the same things or do we disagree? And it's not just about finding agreements either. Sometimes the best way to make ecumenical progress is by finding out exactly where it is that you disagree. 
And the second movement is called Life and Work, which is aimed more at church witness on the ground, stuff like work to relieve poverty and empower people in community development. Now, the story on mission in the ecumenical movement isn't an entirely feel-good story about the church being drawn closer together. There are still a lot of problems that need to be addressed. One of the themes of the ecumenical movement that's often heard is unity in diversity. So we are united, but we have diverse opinions. But what are the things that we're not willing to compromise on? For example, one of the big issues the Church of South India faced was what to do about bishops. Because the Anglicans had bishops, but the Reformed and Congregational churches didn't. So how do you create unity? Or, for another example, consider global communions, like the Anglican and Methodist churches, which have an argument that comes up often about whether they should affirm same-sex relationships. And if the United Methodist Church was just in the U.S., then they could be openly affirming tomorrow. But because they're a global communion, more conservative churches in the global South keep them from doing so. And whenever they accuse them of not being accepted, many of these churches in the global South remind the West of the legacies of colonialism. So at what point does unity prevent you from being in mission in your local context? This is a huge question. And there's another issue here, which is the role of institutions, which is that they don't matter as much as they used to. People talk about secularization in the U.S. in terms of science and belief and superstition, but you can make another argument that it all goes back to the Vietnam War and Watergate. A lack of trust in institutions means that the ecumenical movement and agreement between these faraway organizations doesn't actually mean a lot for people in the pews on Sundays. Which isn't to say that institutions don't matter, but that ecumenical progress is something that we at a congregational level have to be thinking about. It's not just something that we can pass on to some body that does its work in Chicago or Geneva or wherever. Since ecumenical progress is something that's integral to our witness to the gospel, it's something we all have a responsibility to work on furthering.